fascinating people, insightful stories, an hour of enlightenment. This is Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. With Donald Trump winning the presidency and all that media attention fixated around the idea of a celebrity being our president, there's been many words used to describe his rise to power like historic, unprecedented, groundbreaking, and on and on and on. But he's not really the first person or even the first group of people to use their celebrity status for political gain. That happened nearly 100 years ago in 1923, and not surprisingly, right here in Southern California, not Hollywood, no, but Beverly Hills. Well, Southern California-based journalist Nancy Clare joins us on Conversations with Charlie Dyer. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. The book is called The Battle for Beverly Hills, A City's Independence and the Birth of Celebrity Politics. Nancy's been an editor at Los Angeles Magazine and most recently editor-in-chief of the award-winning L.A. The Los Angeles Times Magazine. She has also contributed to articles at the L.A. Times, Hollywood Reporter, Los Angeles Review of Books. You get the idea. She's, she's written for a lot of places. Nancy is the chief interviewer for the podcast. Speaking of mysteries, check everything out on her personal website, nancyclaire.com that's n-a-n-c-i-e that's spelled a little differently than you're used to and claire c-l-a-r-e you've really been around and done a lot so this is one of those things that i'm sure because you're here in southern california there was some some story that you heard that sparked you to want to really get down and deep and why this happened in beverly hills why was this the first time i wrote an opening essay for a coffee table book by Asseline called In the Spirit of Beverly Hills. And I researched it like I would research any article. I suppose I could have phoned it in, but, you know, I went to the Beverly Hills Public Library, which is pretty amazing, actually. And they have a historical collection, and I was going through all sorts of things having to do with Beverly Hills. And I came upon this story, and I filed it sort of away in my brain and said, you know, when I get the opportunity, when this project is done, I'm going to read a book about this because this is kind of interesting. And then there was no book about this. And and I thought there should be. So that was the beginning. And then, you know, other projects came along and then finally... The universe assigned you a project. The universe came to me and said, This is just right there waiting. No one has ever written a book about this before. And maybe this is a great subject for your first, you know, real book. Well, Nancy, you write in your new book, The Battle for Beverly Hills, that the celebrities who took a stand against annexation uh, from Los Angeles not only won that battle, you know, the spoilers, of course, we know Beverly Hills is its own city. Uh, They quite possibly actually changed politics in the United States and perhaps the world forever. That's a really bold statement and, you know, a monumental shift in, in our idea about politics. So talk about the confluence of factors that you think really brought about that change. Well, first of all, the birth of movie stars. In 1923, they were a very, very new phenomenon. Earlier, about five years earlier, just as they were beginning to get recognition, uh, four stars, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, and Marie Dressler, were asked to help sell Liberty Loan bonds for World War I. And Mary Pickford was nothing short of a genius when it came to using the press and using her celebrity and using all these tools in her kit 
to get what she wanted. And I think during this tour, she realized she had enormous influence to get people to do things that they might not otherwise do. Buy war bonds, buy war bonds in higher denominations than they might otherwise uh, want to, you know, want to do. That they came out just to see her. And I think when the annexation question came up, it was very much about self-interest for Mary Pickford. She was famously uh, concerned with her image. Uh, And she wanted complete control of her environment, if that was at all possible. So I think another thing she learned uh, during the war bond drive was that a compliant government can help you, can help a celebrity get what he or she wants. And I think all of this sort of filtered down. And when she found out about the annexation, she said, "Ah, you know, this I've got to stop. I don't want to be part of Los Angeles. Los Angeles was famously corrupt in the early 1920s. It was prohibition. Um, and they, the police department was, was complicit, uh, an active partner in the graft and the corruption, as were the press. And so, and there were seven newspapers that just were obsessed with uh, the celebrities that lived in the area. Well, Nancy, talk about, uh, before we get there, the, the city of Beverly Hills exists, as you write, basically because of one woman, yet another woman, a really strong woman, Margaret Anderson. And you say that she was really, you know, a force to be reckoned with in the formation of Beverly Hills at all. Absolutely. She was the power behind the Beverly Hills Hotel. Before she did that, she did the Hollywood Hotel. So she sort of had met some of these early pioneers of the motion picture industry. And when she was asked by the founders of the city of Beverly Hills, the Rodeo Land and Water Company, the developers, I should say, she built this fantastic hotel uh, and opened it in 1912. And in the book, I say she actually gave the city a heart before it had much of a body. There were maybe, you know, a dozen homes <laughs> when she opened in 1912. And it it brought people there, and they saw how nice it was, and they decided, okay, you know, I can stay here and find a lot and build a fantastic uh, McMansion. And it was one of those places that, uh, as long as you could afford it, nobody really cared where you came from, who you were, if you were living with someone in sin, it didn't really matter as long as you could pay the mortgage. Yes, absolutely. And and in that, I think Margaret Anderson set a tone uh, for her hotel and for the city. Um, in many ways, Los Angeles was depressingly the same as... Uh, cities on the East Coast and in the South and Midwest, they no sooner did the Anglos move in to a, uh, a city, a region that had only been part of the United States for about 70 years, uh, and start a social register. And none of the celebrities that we're talking about uh, that were part of the Beverly Hills Eight that stood against annexation would have ever made a social register. Okay, we, have, that, to, we have to stop you there because okay. <laughs> there's all these old-timey things that, while in the back of my mind, I can kind of remember them because my mom's from the South and she had to go to debutante balls and all that. But, uh, you know, we are speaking to a lot of younger people here on our digital radio station who, uh, be, aside from not knowing who Mary Pickford is, they have no idea what you're talking about in terms of... A, <laughs> 
a uh, so society role. What what in the world are you talking about? Well, a social register is exactly that. It's it's like a telephone book of high society, um, and you people. It was important. It was important for business. You had to be white. You had to be Protestant. You had to have your parents had to be married. Um, you had to be a member of the right clubs and go to the right church and have gone to the right schools. And it just on and on and on. It, it's, it's, uh, it was oppressive and uh, limiting and everything that I think this country should not be. And it's funny to think about all that information being out there as a way to establish yourself as a person. And we're still having this conversation today with all of the social media and saying, well, my privacy has been invaded. And yet people willingly put all that information out there to say, here, here I am and here's who I am. I think maybe that's a human trait. Maybe uh, we want to let people know what is special about us. Uh, and in the case of the social register, they, the people who were deemed worthy to be included wanted not only for everyone to know how special they were, but how not special the rest of them were. So let's talk about those, that, that cast of characters, because of course we're in Hollywood here. We have a Mary Pickford Theater in Cathedral City with a permanent exhibit of some of her costumes, you know, some memorabilia. There's an Oscar there, and of course the theater itself. And I always wonder when all those little kids are bouncing around on the, the sofa in that exhibit room, like, do they have any clue who this woman is and the power that she had at one time? So let's just talk about Mary Pickford, because she just, she really was uh, so ahead of her time. She was ahead of her time, and many biographers have subtitled their books, you know, Mary Pickford, The Woman Who Invented Hollywood. She was a savant. I mean, she understood the industry. She understood the connection. She understood the power of celebrity. Uh, When this was all new, when many of her fellow uh, actors didn't even know if the flickers were going to stick around. You know, it's like maybe it's all going to go away and we're going to go back to the legitimate stage, which is, you know, what they called putting on plays. And, of course, some of them didn't even do that. They came from vaudeville. They came from vaudeville. Which was not legitimate. (laughs) Which is supposedly not legitimate, but still entertainment. Yes, but at that time. And you have to think to yourself, you know, this was a woman. Actually, when she started her sort of press wars with uh, with Adolf Zucker, who was uh, in charge of the famous player's studio, one of the early studios. She was 17. I mean, she was young and just got it. You know, she was young and very, very poor and of mixed religious background, um, Catholic and Protestant. And to be a Catholic in the, you know, early part of the 20th century was, was not something that was going to get you into the social register. And of course, her, uh, her hot lover there, Douglas Fairbanks. Her hot lover, also uh, of mixed religious background, only half Jewish, something he hid all of his life, something that he, he dreaded anyone finding out. And, and I, have to, I have to say, uh, with good reason. I mean, he arrived in Hollywood uh, uh, in the, I think, 19, around 1915, to signs that said, you know, no, no, no dogs, no Jews, no movie. And by movie, they meant people that worked in the movies. 
And that had to have registered even for an insouciant guy like uh, Douglas Fairbanks. It was the morning of February 26, 1923, that a bomb actually exploded in the hands of an editor of the Beverly Hills News. So set the scene for that, because I think when we often look back in our memories to, you know, a nicer time back in the past, we don't think of bombings. And that was a really violent act of terrorism to come to uh, an annexation of Beverly Hills from Los Angeles. I just, I, I have a hard time putting those two things together. So what was the bomber's motive? And, and, and what do you think the unintended consequence was that came out of that action? You know, we never found out who the bomber was. And there was scuttlebutt uh, that I read in the notes of some of the people that had thought about this, that he had perhaps sent it to himself. Uh, as a prank, because they ultimately determined the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, who were asked to investigate, uh, came to the conclusion that it was, you know, a lot of firecrackers and some black powder. But before they came to that conclusion, this was a very shocking thing. The, the teens in the early 20s were an incredibly violent time throughout the world. Uh, and bombs were the tools of anarchists. And there was anarchists running around the country. It wasn't the first bomb, and it wasn't the last. Uh, there had been a bomb at the Los Angeles Times that had killed uh, more than 20 people and injured 100 others. This was, in Los Angeles, I think a bomb in a newspaper, even 13 years after that L.A. Times bombing, was something that would get the reader's attention. I think it shook the community. Yeah, you bring up an excellent question, and it's a question I asked myself when I was researching this. Is like, why, why would this sort of mundane, routine uh, interaction between two incorporated cities, Beverly Hills and Los Angeles, engender this kind of um, violence? And it was either a prank gone wrong, or somebody, you know, wanted him to uh, not be so pro-annexation. This was Al Murphy, the editor. It's hard to say, but it was, it was shocking. And, it, it, I, and I think on the case of the celebrities, this was not something they wanted to be associated with. I think they did their best to distance themselves as far as possible as, because the last thing they wanted to be uh, uh, identified as was in any way subversive. You know, this was still, the Espionage Act of 1917 was still kind of, the ink was, wasn't dry yet. And uh, they did not want the attention of any government agency because they wanted to just have fun. Well, and they did focus their efforts really into more grassroots, uh, low-key events that you write about in the battle for Beverly Hills, Nancy. So talk about Mary Pickford and the Gang of Eight's decision to, to go that route instead of really what you would, you know, I guess, think of off the top of your head. Of, well, they're celebrities, they're famous, they should go that way. Well, I think it's another evidence of Mary Pickford's genius. She knew that if the uh, studios sent out a press release, which they often did, saying where their stars were going to be and what they were going to be doing, that she would keep this low key. She didn't need tens of thousands of people showing up. She needed to influence the 1,000 voters that lived in Beverly Hills. That's it. 
And so what she did, along with Rudolph Valentino and Harold Lloyd and Tom Mix and Fred Niblo and uh, uh, Conrad Nagel and, and her husband, was go around door to door. And here's the, what I think was the secret sauce. It was, they were immediately identifiable. Who isn't going to invite Mary Pickford into their house to talk about this annexation? Who isn't going to invite Rudolph Valentino, the 1920s equivalent of the sexiest man alive, into the parlor to sit down and have a cup of tea and talk about this? It's, it's that instant recognition. There's no introductions needed. I'm Mary Pickford. I'm Douglas Fairbanks. I'm Harold Lloyd. These, these were incredibly famous people. So I think that's why they took that approach. Well, Nancy, why do you think this story has largely been forgotten? Is, is, it, the, is it the aspect that Mary Pickford was at the, the forefront of this, and at the time these kinds of things would just sort of fade away into the memory of history? I've been asking myself that question a lot. Um, there's a lot of back and forth about, you know, why uh, people either think the president is qualified or don't think the president is qualified. And a lot of times it comes down to celebrity and who he was on his television show. And that could be translated to Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the governor here in California, as well as Ronald Reagan and even George Murphy. With the one thing, and, and in Palm Springs, Sonny Bono, mm-hmm. who became mayor because he wanted to open a restaurant and he found the bureaucracy was too onerous to to wade through and then he became a uh, congressman it it's it's self-interest and and I don't know why people don't care more about why this started and why there's just this kind of acceptance of people who play a role and why we don't look behind the role and say, well, who is this person? What are his or her qualifications for uh, government? Government is, is a skill. It's not a role. Well, Nancy Clare is the author of The Battle for Beverly Hills, A City's Independence, and the Birth of Celebrity Politics. We know something about that today, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> and the personal website is nancyclare.com. Her name is spelled a little differently than you think, N-A-N-C-I-E, and her last name is C-L-A-R-E. Thank you so much for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio, Nancy. Well, thank you, Charlie. It was a great, I had a great time.